It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. My voiceover timing was a little bit off today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the big show. Let's go in the chat room, make sure that I'm actually live. I'll wait for people to say, hello, how are you? <laughs> oh, good. I'm showing up. Yay. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Amanda. How are you? What time is it there? Wow, the gang's all here. Woohoo! Big turnout today. All right. Let's say hello to some folks. We've got El Rosso, Emil, Simon Burnham, Dean Turner, Robbie Hancock, Carl Wurzbach, Janet Snare, Terrell Beckless, Alan Hall, John Pearson, Gordon Snow, Akira Canyon, Martin Frog, Doug Hartwell, Kim Daenerys, Daenerys? Uh Karen Brasher, Chris Anderson, Amanda West, Gloria Covington, Edmund Red, Keith and Deb McCall, Cass McKenty, Alan Hall, Pierre Venio. Stuart McClellan, Alex Dillon, Debbie Ward. Wow, you guys are all here. Good job for showing up. It is Monday. I want to let you know right here at the top of the show that I will be doing a quarantine happy hour tomorrow at 4 o'clock. But that'll be it for this week because we have Thanksgiving on Thursday. So no quarantine on Thursday. Um, and then we'll be back again next Monday with a regular episode of Taxi TV and Tuesday and Thursday uh, quarantinis next week, okay? So there you go. There's all that. Let me make a little adjustment here. All right, there we go. That's all good. All right. Yes, I like the turnout. Hey, Dan Weber, how are you? Thank you very much for that incredibly warm and wonderful email that you sent. I did get it, and I really, really appreciate your kind words. That was very sweet of you. Um, okay, so on today's show, we're going to talk about why some music libraries don't want to hear your music. Um, this may be a shorter show than usual, although once I get through this topic, maybe you guys will have a bunch of questions and hopefully I can answer them all well. But why don't why some why don't some libraries want to hear your music? Well, it's not that they don't want to hear your music. Uh, and let me read off some of these things that I had in the email. I just went digging through some listings when I crafted this email the other day and wrote these or pasted them in. Um, and, and we have been getting phone calls and emails probably to the tune of five or ten a week now for a few weeks because more and more of the libraries are putting language like this or asking us to put this language into the listings. Important note, this company offers an exclusive deal and is only interested in signing material from composers who've worked for libraries and licensing companies in the past and understand how standard deals work. If you don't have that experience and you don't know the dr drill on typical deals, then they politely ask that you don't submit to this request. Here's another one. Important, with an exclamation point, per our client, your submissions must not be encumbered by any other publishing, licensing, administration, and or exploitation deals, uh, whether non-exclusive or exclusive, including publishing slash licensing agreements with CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid, etc. Next one, note. 
This company is not interested in composers that turn in one or two tracks every couple of months. They want composers who have experience writing full albums in this genre. They're only interested in signing material from composers who've worked with music libraries and music licensing companies in the past and understand how those deals work. If you don't understand the drill on library deals, they politely ask that you don't submit to this request. Um, here's another one. Important note. This producer has specifically asked that you only send unreleased songs that aren't already commercially available. If you've already commercially released them, then they can't use them. This includes on Spotify, CD Baby, etc. So a couple little different twists on this theme I'm seeing here. Here's yet another one. Important. Per our client, your submissions must, number one, not be encumbered by any other publishing, licensing, administration, or exploitation deals, whether non-exclusive or exclusive, including publishing, licensing agreements with CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid, etc. Um, and number two, that they need to be 100% original. No soundalikes, cover songs, and no recordings with samples. Unless, of course, those samples are samples of your own work. Um, here's another one. Quoting the company, only artists and writers affiliated with ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and APRA-AMCOS are eligible to submit their music for this opportunity. So there you go. Um, so let's talk about this. Uh, Bria and I were talking, by the way, Bria is producing today's show. So if you see the yellow taxi independent A&R pop up, that would be Bria. Um, Liz is getting her teeth drilled at the dentist today. Um, so my guess, I'll get to that uh, in due time. Um, all right, so the number one reason, and we went over this actually during the road rally. Excuse me. I'm always a little amazed, especially this year, that the road rally was online and nobody had to pay for travel. Nobody had to leave their home. Anybody could go watch it after the live stuff. They could go watch the archives. Yet, not every taxi member does that. And it kind of blows my mind because there was such incredible information on those on the panels this year at the rally, you know, just tons of great information. And I think there were at least one or two panels where this got discussed. Um, so let's go to the first one, which I believe is pretty similar to the second one. Company offers an exclusive deal and is only interested in signing material from composers who've worked for libraries and licensing companies in the past and understand how standard deals work. That's the key phrase. If you don't have that experience and you don't know the drill on typical deals, they politely ask that you don't submit to this request. So, as library executives have said on Taxi TV episodes and said uh, on road rally panels, it's becoming a huge, huge problem. Um, like I said, we're getting five or 10 of these calls or emails a week from members who are a little ticked off. And I understand that. I really do. It's like you see a listing and you go, I've got the perfect piece of music for that, but they don't want me to submit because I've never done a library deal before. Well, as it happens, a lot of people, believe it or not, don't know how the library side of the publishing, music publishing industry works. 
they just don't know. And they've never had the experience before. So they submit something through taxi. It gets forwarded by the screener and then it gets sent to the library and the person who does the intake at the library hears it and goes, wow, this would be a great addition to our catalog. So they do some due diligence on their end. Um, that might be looking at the, the roster of ASCAP or BMI, looking to see if the song is uh, registered there yet, um, looking to see if they can find any evidence, I guess, or, or, or any breadcrumbs that lead them to the composer. Just they're, they're curious, they wanna know. Um, and so they do all that stuff, which takes them a little bit of time. Uh, and then they reach out to the taxi member slash composer slash artist slash songwriter and they say, hey, this is John from John Doe Music Library and I would love to sign that piece of music from you, whether it be uh, an instrumental or a song. And they start this conversation and uh, all is good during the conversation. They say, well, that's great, man. Great to meet you. Let me send you out the contract so you can take a look at that. And then when the member slash songwriter slash composer slash artist gets the contract, they go, holy crap, I can't believe it. They want 100% of the publishing, which is actually not true. They don't want 100% of the publishing. They typically want 100% of the publisher's share, which is actually only half of the publishing which means that if you make a dollar, they make a dollar. Um, I know that many of you who are here today are uh, taxi members who watch the show regularly, and you know this already, but the very short version of this is, for every publishing dollar, there is the publisher's share and there's the writer's share. The writer's share, almost 100% of the time, with very few exceptions, stays with the writer. The publisher's share goes to the publisher. Um, in the old school record industry side of music publishing, um, that was a whole different scenario. They would hear songwriters they liked, they would offer them a staff writer deal, they would advance them money ranging from, I don't know, 10,000, 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, depending kind of where that writer was in the world. If it's somebody who's very desirable and had some sort of track record before, they might get a bigger advance, and that's what it is. It's an advance. Somebody who's new to the game and doesn't have a track record would obviously be offered less money. And what they're doing is paying you an advance as a stipend to keep food on the table while you're busy writing songs. And you would write 12 songs a year, or you would turn in 12 songs a year, and they would approve them, say, yep, this is over our quality bar. Yep, this is over our quality bar. And if you got to the third one or fourth one, it wasn't something they felt that they could make money with. No, nope, that one doesn't count uh, against your 12 because it's just not good enough. So eventually you get to the point where you've given them 12 songs. Then they go out and try and exploit those copyrights by plugging them to artists on major record labels, typically. Uh, and when it earns money, you are, they are collecting their advance. They're earning their advance back. So let's say that you got 50 grand. Well, they get that 50 grand, um, comes back to them in the form of what used to be <laughs> mechanicals. They're not 
that big a deal anymore because people aren't stamping out CDs or LPs as much. Um, and, and the performance royalties that you get when your music airs on TV or on radio, there are many more complicated things that I won't go into today because that's a whole different subject about how you get paid when stuff is on YouTube or on Spotify, blah, 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 blah. Whole different thing. So anyway, that was kind of the old school model. Um, the production music library model um, is basically a 50-50 deal. And by the way, under that old school model, I should have said that sometimes they'll do what's called a co-publishing deal, which means that the writer or creator gets 100% of the writer's share, which is typical throughout all deals, um, no matter if it's production music library or regular publishing, as in the record side of the industry. Um, but in, in that old school world, they would do a co-pub deal sometimes where it would be a 50-50 split of the writer's share as well. So ostensibly, you could end up as the creator of the music with 100% of the writer's share and 50% of the other 50%, which means that you would make 75 cents on every dollar and the publisher would make 25 cents because they owned half of the publisher's share. In the production music library world, it is extremely typical. I can't say it's 100%. Is it a fair guess to say it's 90% of the time or greater that the publisher gets 100% of the publisher's share and the writer slash creator gets 100% of the writer's share? Absolutely. So this is what a lot of people who are new to the game don't really know. It's not that they're dumb. It's just they don't know, and they don't know what they don't know. So uh, they might reach out. They get this contract. They're all enthused. Oh, boy, a publisher, a music library wants to sign me, and then they get this contract. And typically the library contracts are fairly short compared to what uh, a publishing contract might look like with like Warner Chapel or Sony ATV or Universal Music Pub. Um, and I would say that's probably a two- or three- or four-page agreement. Um, they're not all the same, but they are in a ballpark. I would say the vast majority of them are in a ballpark, um, meaning that they're pretty similar. There are variations on a theme, but they're pretty similar. Um, so now you get this thing and you look at it and you go, well, hold on a minute. This says that the publisher gets 100% of the publisher's share. So you reach out to a friend of yours who's a lawyer real estate lawyer in Ottawa, Illinois. <laughs> and uh, the real estate lawyer is a big fan of music. And while he or she was in college, they took a couple of music law courses or entertainment law courses. And for whatever reason, you're aware that they are knowledgeable on this stuff. Well, that was probably 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And music libraries were very obscure back then. Um, most of you guys didn't know what a music library was probably until you joined Taxi. I would say that uh, songwriters and composers worldwide didn't know really until like 10 years ago. It just wasn't a thing. Um, the library business was a whole kind of different model back then, which I don't want to get into now. It might break my, my rhythm here, but maybe I'll talk about that later. So... Um, you, I'm going to say you, meaning generally you, the uh, newbie songwriter, artist, composer, 
send this contract over to your friend, the real estate attorney, or real estate, uh, yeah, real estate attorney, um, who also took some music law courses and loves music. Uh, and lawyers are in the business of protecting you. So they read this thing and they too go, oh my God, they want 100% of the publisher's share. Sometimes they'll mistakenly say, oh my God, I can't believe they want 100% of the publishing. They don't. They only want half of the publishing, half of the whole publishing dollar, but they do want 100% of the publisher's share. And so the attorney, not knowing anything about the music library business says, oh my God, I would never sign that deal. That deal sucks. Because uh, people have been told over the ages, you know, hang on to your publishing. Well, being realistic about it, owning 100% of all the publishing on a 90 second instrumental cue, meh. I mean, it's not like you're gonna make a hundred grand with that cue, right? But they don't know because they don't know the industry. They don't know what the norm is in the industry. And they have no idea that an instrumental cue in an episode of my favorite show, The Kardashians, uh, might only generate, you know, $1.62 for the 14 seconds that it plays in a scene where Kim Kardashian can't get the cap off the milk container because her fingernails are too long, right? They don't know any of this stuff. All they know is what they learned 10, 20, 30 years ago about a different side of the publishing industry. And they say, oh my God, I would never sign that. This company's trying to rip you off. So now, the taxi member slash songwriter slash composer slash artist picks up the phone or sends an email to the library owner that they had this very nice conversation with and says, uh, my lawyer says I shouldn't sign this contract because it's extremely one-sided. Can't believe that you guys are trying to take all the publishing. And we've had many reports of many, when I say many, I don't know, 20 of these over the years, where library owners have called me up or emailed me or texted me and said, I cannot believe the conversation I just had with this uh, taxi member. Offer, had a really nice conversation, offered him or her a deal. They ran it by an attorney friend of theirs. And now they're calling me up and they're literally badgering me and raising their voices and getting kind of nasty saying, how dare you? You're trying to rip me off. They're not. It's just unless you are experienced in the ways of the production music library industry, you just don't know. So that's why they want people who are experienced because they don't want to invest the time to do their due diligence, have the conversation with you, uh, generate the contract, which is going to be a standard contract. There are a few exceptions, but they're really rare. And as a new writer slash composer, you are not going to get, you're not going to have the ability to have them negotiate the contract. And you know what? I'm going to make a note right now so we can talk about when you can negotiate a better deal. Okay. So you immediately think, oh my goodness. They're trying to screw me. They're trying to take advantage of me because I don't know anything because I'm new to the game. They're not. It's their standard deal. And they send it out to virtually everybody that they sign has signed that same deal. 
Um, they're loath to even change a simple word or a phrase or a sentence or a clause in the contract. The reason being, how the heck would they remember? Let's say they've got 10,000 pieces of music in their catalog and those 10,000 pieces of music came from a couple thousand different writers, right? How are they ever going to remember who had this clause changed or that word taken out or a phrase uh, reworded? They could never remember that. So that's why they use a standard contract. Any library that's worth its salt has actually had the contract drafted with the help of a legit music attorney. And I'm when I say legit, believe me, I know music attorneys, big, high-powered music attorneys that you know have done deals for like REM and Michael Jackson. They don't know anything about production music library contracts because it's an area of the industry that they always look down their nose at because it wasn't a multi-million dollar deal. Why should they bother? Um, they're probably right. You know, if I were an attorney and I were used to working with major artists on major deals, and there are some attorneys that would actually get a percentage of the deal, a little percentage, but they would get a percentage. That's how they charged. Um, there was some, uh, it would motivate them to try and get more money. Let's say that you were Michael Jackson and you're being offered a deal for a million dollars. I'm just pulling that out of thin air. Obviously, Michael Jackson would get more um, and they're going to get, you know, half a point or a point on that. Um, so it's in the attorney's best interest to negotiate uh, and try and turn that into a $2 million deal because they make more money. Um, also, they want bragging rights. So in the world of traditional publishing deals and or record deals, um, the attorneys want to get the most for their client because, first of all, that's what they should do. And second of all, uh, they love to be able to say to everybody else in the industry, yeah, I got them twice what they were asking. That's their thing. I can't blame them. So they just never took the time to learn the library side of the industry because, frankly, up until without sounding braggadocious about it, Taxi was really the first entity in the industry that kind of introduced the concept of thousands of homebound musicians with home studios making music that ended up in production music library catalogs. Before that, it was professional composers that worked mainly for libraries and there were maybe five or 10 or 20 composers that comprised an entire catalog. That's why everything sounded kind of homogenous. Um, and, and they would uh, look at the, the library owner would look at charts, maybe hear a little four track demo that was done on like a TAC four track or something. Uh, and they go, okay, I want to cut that one, that piece, that piece, and that piece. And then they would assemble all the pieces of music that they wanted to do. They would have charts made of them. They would go into a big studio like Ocean Way. They would hire top shelf session players and they would cut all the rhythm tracks for 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 new tracks or songs. And then they would bring in the string players and they would put strings on everything that needed strings. Then they bring in the horn players put horns on everything that needed horns. It's kind of a, an assembly line factory um, with great players, great studios, but the stuff ended up sounding kind of like, you know, stock music or canned music because it was. So then uh, back in around 1993, I believe, uh, we got a, a call from a woman named Susan 
um, who owned a, a production music library, and she said, can you find me horrific music? And I said, horrific as in really bad or for horror flicks? And she went, the latter. So we ran a listing. And if memory serves, one of our members named Steve Clark, who lives somewhere here in Los Angeles, actually made her really happy with some of his music. And to the best of my knowledge, that was probably the first time in the history of the library industry where a little schlepper from a home studio got their music into a library catalog. And that really was the shot heard around the world. I'm sure there were one-offs that happened because somebody lived next door to a music library owner or somebody was related to one or maybe a musician that played parts on the you know the compositions of other library people said hey i can do that too i'm sure that things like that happened but i believe to the best of my knowledge that taxi really was the, the shot heard around the world that introduced the entire concept of independent home studio musicians getting their music into production music catalogs it would be nice in a perfect world to think that all that mattered is the music. But as I've been teaching you guys for about 11 years now on Taxi TV and all the variations thereof and the Road Rally and our newsletter and our forums and everywhere else we can teach this, it's the music business. The words carry equal weight. Um, it's kind of an assumption that the music has to be good or the business part of it isn't going to take place. So it was kind of a free-for-all as more and more people started getting home studios and started getting really good as composers and producers and maybe they belonged to Taxi so they learned about what the structure of a queue was like. They learned that you know it has to feel like it's going somewhere, that it's got some forward momentum that it grows and builds and drops back down and has edit points and then has a big finish with an exclamatory stinger ending on it. All those little rules of the game um, became common knowledge amongst many of you. What didn't become common knowledge amongst many people, not just pointing my finger at you, although I just did, didn't I? <laughs> um, they started getting accepted by these companies but when push came to shove over the contracts, they'd go, oh my God, we're right back to that whole scenario, whether they involved an attorney or not, or whether they read, you know, the, that book by Steve Krasilovsky, This Business of Music, or maybe they read, uh, I can't think of his name, Don Passman's book, um, Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business. Um, so they had some knowledge, maybe they had no knowledge, maybe they had a lot of knowledge, but what they probably didn't have knowledge of was how the production music library industry worked and what the business mores of the production music library industry are, is, are. <laughs> there you go, I think are is the right word there. So as more and more people became talented and capable and the music they were making was very much on target for what the libraries wanted, the libraries had to, of course, start having these conversations with more and more composers. And it's not infrequent that when they go through that process I explained earlier of the little, you know, the, the wooing of the romancing of, hey man, I love your music. Uh, how long have you been making music? Uh, what other genres do you do? Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to send you a contract. 
and that's when the the phone call happens or the email exchange and it's like holy crap you want me to sign this well I'll tell you what i'll let you have my music if you give me uh i want 100 percent of the publisher share and 100 percent of the writer's share well clearly that's not going to work because there's nothing in it for the publisher um, okay, well, I want a co-publishing deal. A friend of mine was signed to Warner Chapel. He got a co-publishing deal. So I want a $25,000 advance, and I want half of the publisher share and 100% of the writer's share. That's not going to happen because we're not talking about songs that, like, Sheryl Crow is going to cover or Beyonce is going to cover, you know, big artists that back in the day when records got sold, uh, you know, could sell a lot of records and you could make a lot of money on that publishing. It's a different world. Uh, I have a, a friend who is arguably like the Clive Davis of the production music library world. He has started many libraries, turned them into big libraries, and then sold them. And he's kind of semi-retired, uh, living in a double-wide lot in Mount... Well, actually, I think he moved, but last time I was at his house, he had a double-wide lot on the sand, uh, the most expensive stretch of, of beach in Malibu um, and had two houses that were probably, I don't know, four, five, six thousand square feet each. One was his house and then there was a little colonnade that went from the house to the other house next door. The other house was his office. He's a very, very, very smart man. A lot of the things in the production music library industry are things that he thought of and started um, over his years in the industry. And he once said something very, very wise to me that I think many of you now know, which is it's a penny business. And you have to get a lot of pieces of music created and get them into many catalogs in order to generate many placements so that the pennies add up and become dollars and the dollars add up and become a very real income over time. So... The people who want to be in that side of the industry hear about that and they go, oh man, you know, look at Matt Vanderbilt, look at Matt Hurt, look at Keith LeBrant, look at, I mean, you could go down a list of successful taxi members that are making, you know, arguably six-figure incomes all. Um, maybe uh, there are quite a few taxi members that make, you know, 5000 a year, 10000 a year, 25000 a year doing it part-time as they're growing their catalog and growing um, the number of libraries they work with, all that stuff. So now, because the sea change happened in the way that libraries got music because of Taxi creating that open door for independent musicians, they are now dealing with a bunch of people who just don't know what a typical contract looks like. So that's why they put... This company offers an exclusive deal, um, meaning that you can't put that same piece of music in any other catalog, um, and is only interested in signing material from composers who have worked for libraries and licensing companies in the past and understand how standard deals work. If you don't have that experience and you don't know the drill on typical deals, then they politely ask that you don't submit to that request. So... Do you get it? <laughs> I, I can't blame them. Um, but at this very same time, I feel horrible for people who are hardworking, talented musicians in the form of taxi members in particular. In my case, I feel bad. They see this and they go, what do you mean? Just because I've never done a deal before? Some people, maybe many people, assume 
even though it talks about uh, understand how standard deals work, a lot of people think it's a bit of a slap in the face that, oh my goodness, um, how do they know that I'm not good enough? How do they know my music's not good enough? Just because I've never signed another deal before doesn't mean my music's not good enough. It's not about the music. It's about the deal. So there you go. You guys are chatting away about everything except what I'm talking about. That's all right. I'm ignoring you. Keep chatting. Have a good time. Um, and now we've gotten into the world of CD Baby and TuneCore. I don't know if DistroKid's deal is similar or not. It was mentioned by one of the libraries, but I kind of remember hearing that it's not a deal. Uh, but people sign up for the, the pro-level deal. They're using CD Baby or TuneCore, any of those services to distribute their music um, to places like Spotify or Apple Music. And uh, they do that because they want to monetize it. But they see a little phrase that very gingerly asks, hey, would you like us to monetize your music for you? You mean monetize it like in collect publishing money when people put it in a YouTube video or something? Yeah. I mean, that's the spirit of what they're talking about. Um, in some cases, they talk about, you know, we'll, we'll, I don't know if plug is the right word, but they'll represent it to film and TV opportunities, which I don't know that they've actually got a staff of people that are out there acting um, like, a, like a music library would. I don't think that's the case very often. I could be a little bit wrong about that. I don't know what I don't know. But um, so people see that little checkbox and go, oh, hell yeah, I'd love to have you uh, make me a little extra money, um, monetize my music. So they check the box. And what they don't realize in various forms is they have signed either a publishing agreement, whether it's exclusive, non-exclusive, meaning that the music could be represented by somebody else who could also commission a deal, um, exclusive, non-exclusive, or administrative, an admin deal, which means they collect the money. Well, in all three of those cases, music libraries, production music libraries, don't want to sign that same piece of music because nothing but trouble can come from that. Because maybe you've forgotten that you checked that box five years ago. Um, some people have been downright sneaky and said, mm, Nah, uh, my music's not encumbered when I think deep down inside they might suspect or know that it is. I don't think that happens a lot, but I've heard of a few cases where I think the people had to know and thought they could just kind of slip it in and nobody would notice. Um, so now uh, you are signed, if, if you have signed one of those deals, one of those agreements, and they are publishing agreements or publishing admin agreements with one of those entities, and you then sign a deal at a later date, be it a week later, a month later, or five years later with John Doe's Production Music Library. And now John Doe submits your music to a music supervisor for a film that the soup is working on and the supervisor puts it in there. And lo and behold, uh, there's gonna be an exchange of words between CD Baby or TuneCore or whomever. And I should state, these companies aren't doing anything illegal or immoral. 
um, or even unethical. I've had some people on the, on the production music library side of the industry say, it's not that they're doing anything illegal, immoral, or unethical. What this person in particular had a problem with is the way that it's presented. Um, it should say, by the way, if you check this box, you will not be able to enter into a publishing deal or a publishing admin deal with any other entity without there being a conflict of interest. That, of course, would be true for exclusive deals. If it's a non-exclusive deal, you could ostensibly sign another non-exclusive deal elsewhere. Um, but still, then you run into the problem of, well, let's go back to exclusive for a minute. So now you've signed an exclusive deal uh, publishing agreement, or you've signed just a, a, an admin agreement that's exclusive. Um, and that piece of music ends up in a film because the library you also signed with got it to a music soup, the soup put it in the film, and now who gets to collect the money? Well, the library owner should get to collect the money because the library owner got the music to the supervisor who put it in the film and, or TV show. Uh, but then again, sometimes these other entities come out of the woodwork and go, well, hang on, we signed that to a deal four years ago. Um, so there have been friends of mine who are music library owners that have had to just throw up their hands and go, fine, go ahead, take the money. Now, you would think that the other entity, um, and again, I'm not saying anything bad about CD Baby or TuneCore or any of these companies, but you would think that they would go, ouch, all right, bummer that we ended up where we're at right now at this little standoff. Um, how about if we just split the revenue and call it a day? But I've heard absolute, I mean, I know this for a fact because I've heard it from very credible people who it's actually happened to, where it was never suggested nor agreed to that they just be gentlemanlike about it and split the money. So there are problems that can arise from all of this stuff, especially because you can't have more than one exclusive music publishing deal. <laughs> Ken Mesford says they should thumb wrestle for it. There you go. That's how, you know, let's do away with the Supreme Court. We should just have the Supreme um, thumb wrestling court. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cute. Put on your black robe and, and adjudicate a thumb wrestling match. Um, okay, so hopefully does that explain that? Um, tell me if I'm making sense and uh, if you guys are still following along and should I go to the next Thing. Uh, Cass McKenty has a question. How many successful members don't collaborate? Um, honestly, Cass, I could just venture a guess. I would say probably 60 or 70% of successful members do collaborate. That's just a guess, but a, probably a decent one. Okay. Um, all right, people are saying it makes sense. Yay. Okay, that's good. So now um, let's move on to this one. Uh, this is another one that you'll see pop up in listings. Ooh, hang on, Gloria. Well, you know what? I'll take Gloria's question really quick, and then I'll jump back into this thing. Um, question, if you understand the production music library deals but are not signed with a library, can you still submit? 
Well then, you know, Gloria, I knew somebody was gonna ask that question and it's a really good question. Here's the problem. How do we know that you know? I know you personally, and I know that you're a regular here, so you probably know. But there are other people just because they want to submit, they want to get their music out there, they want to make a little money, they want to get heard. They're going to be a little less than honest and go, okay, yeah, I know how it works, when they really don't. So that's a problem. We actually, uh, I've actually, as recently as today, had a discussion about maybe we should have some sort of taxi certification that if you're a taxi member and you take a test like a driving test that shows that you know this stuff, then you are okay to submit anywhere. But then all of a sudden taxi becomes a testing entity and a certification entity. And do we charge for that? Well, we probably should because it's going to take time and effort and money and staff to pull that off. But I think that we have, <laughs> Terrell Beckler says, yes, test. Haven't we all heard enough about testing lately? <laughs> I mean, really? Um, all right, I'm going to take a sip of Red Bull Blue Edition today. Because I just spoke for 40 minutes without stopping and barely taking a breath, I might add. Um, anyway, excuse me. Um, so the testing idea or the, well, we know Gloria, she's cool. So then do we have to get involved and do we have to vouch for you, Gloria? Again, not saying anything, you know, mean or untoward to you. I'm just holding you up as an example here because you asked the question. So every time a taxi member who is pretty sure they know the drill or very sure that they know the drill or maybe fudging a little bit and they don't really know the drill, they're going to submit their music um, to these libraries. It, it, does Taxi have to go through the list of all the forwards and go, oh, yeah, we know this person. They're cool. Oh, we don't know this person. We don't know what they know. So, sorry, we, we got to take them off the forward list. It, it's unwieldy at, at best, right? So, um, oh, no, we've got cases of rock star at the office, Jesse. We still have probably, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 cases of Rockstar. I just happen to love this flavor of Red Bull. I've got a couple of pallets, or not pallets, a couple of flats of um, Rockstar out in the garage. Flavors I don't really like, though. Um, use a trusted reference. What does that mean, Chuck? Uh, use a trusted reference. Um, does that mean that... Yeah, what does that mean, use a trusted reference? I'm curious. Spill the beans, Chuck. Tell me what you're thinking. I know Taxi does fill you in on all the things you need to know if you watch the show, if you go to the road rally, if you read the newsletter, if you hang out on the forum. Uh, you're welcome, Robbie. I didn't send you the mug. Actually, it's like Shopify or somebody that fulfills the orders, but thanks for buying it. Um, they're kind of cool, aren't they? I like them. Um, so maybe someone maybe who teaches a course. Well, okay, so does that mean now that if Taxi forwards 67 things to a library, that again, we have to like reach out to every member on that list of 67 people and think that they're actually gonna respond to the email in an hour, which they won't, we know from experience. It, honestly, if I send out 67 emails, 
Only 20 of those people will even open the email and only five of those 20 will even bother to respond to it. Those are real numbers. I'm telling you from 20, almost 29 years of experience, that's the world we live in today. So can't do that. Um, I like the test idea and I can't understand it and I can understand if you charge, but do we want to take time away from getting great listings? Do we want to take time away from educating the members? Do we want to take time away from finding new companies to run listings with us or screening the music? I want us to be a music company, not a testing service. Um, yay, Jan Weilich just got a taxi mug today. Um, 444, the sun just fell into the Pacific. Yeah, notice how my, my lighting scheme has changed. I just ordered a second ring light that should be here tomorrow because I'm not digging the lighting scenario when the sun goes down. Um, okay, so Timothy Cook opens all of our emails. Yay, Timothy, but you would be shocked. Uh, even on our member list, only about 30% on average, every time we send out an email, only 30% of the members open it. Do you know how many taxi members did not come to the road rally? Thousands. It was free. It was brought to their house. It didn't cost them a penny. And yet two thirds of taxis members didn't lift a finger or take the time to turn off the Kardashians and turn on the road rally so they could learn this stuff. But those are probably the first people to get a phone call from a library owner and then start badgering the owner going, what the hell, man? I'm going to sign this contract. Here's what I'll sign. I want you to change this. I want you to change that because they don't know the reason. They don't know what you've learned so far in this episode. They don't know that libraries have standard contracts because it'd be impossible with thousands of composers, writers, and artists to, to keep track of who's got which terms. So they just have a standard contract. Either you want to do business with us or you don't. And, and frankly, I, like, I think I've reported before in previous episodes, I think twice in taxis, almost 29 years of being in business and having worked with thousands of companies, only twice have we ever regretted working with a company, um, meaning that they turned out to be something different than they presented themselves as, or they told us their deal was X, and then once they got comfortable and, and found that Taxi's members made great music and they were getting a bunch of great music, then they changed up their deal. Maybe not you know, in any huge way, but enough that it pissed off members and we had egg on our face. It wasn't our fault that they changed the deal and didn't tell us, but hey, Taxi introduced me to this company. Now this company is a creepy company, so I get it. But like I said, twice out of thousands. Um, right, Marion Laird says, I imagine people who didn't come to the virtual road rally are the same ones who aren't here uh, for Taxi TV. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, I, I affectionately kid around with the people that watch the Quarantini Happy Hours that they've become like, you know, teacher's pets. That we're all like a little family. Um, they've learned a lot. You know, we've had, we, we talk about gophers in my backyard and like tomato plants and stuff, but I think that I, I've taught a lot of good stuff uh, over the time, but I realize not everybody's got an hour to hang out. Not everybody's got a 90 minute slot to sit down and watch this show and they won't. They'll look at it and they, you know, they'll turn it on and watch a minute or two and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is 90 minutes. Yeah, okay, but it's a lot shorter than a college education, right? Um, 
Nope, I think we've got something better than a certificate. Bria and I were talking about this this morning. It was on, I had a little list that I wrote down about three months ago regarding this, and then Bria blurted out this morning. And I went, well, the fact that both of us came up with that independently of each other, there's got to be something to it. I'll tell you in a bit. Um, Savannah, Philia, how are you? Been a year since we've seen each other. Savannah was one of the people that came by after the road rally in 2019 and uh, did the post road rally roundup show at the office. A lovely young lady at that. Talented, I should say. Um, okay, so uh, yes, Angela was great last week, wasn't she? I've got to have her on the show more often. Um, She's a very smart person and really, you know, it's funny because she's like so easygoing and like good natured, but very professional, really knows what she's talking about. Um, okay, so the next thing now that I've had my little respite from talking constantly uh, is this company is not interested in composers that turn in one or two tracks every couple of months. They want composers who have, have experience writing full albums in this genre. They're only interested in signing material from composers who've worked with music libraries and music licensing companies in the past and understand how those deals work. There's that phrase again. If you don't understand the drill on library deals, they politely ask that you don't submit to this request. So their thing, excuse me, covers a couple of bases. The first one being they're really not that interested in, uh, in somebody that made a great piece of music, submitted it in response to a listing they ran with Taxi. We forwarded it to them. They heard it and went, wow, this is great. I'd love to include this in my catalog. Um, they want a deeper well, and, and they want people who can crank the stuff out pretty quickly. They don't want to hear one piece of great music strike up the conversation, sign that piece of music, and then deal with a composer that says, oh yeah, I can make more of that. Usually it only takes me like a month or two to, to make one. A month or two, what? <laughs> the reason being is that many music libraries put out CDs. They call them CDs. Uh, um, I doubt that they ever actually make it to a shiny disc, but they put out collections of 10, 12, 15, maybe even as many as 20 of a similar type of thing in a particular genre. Um, reason being, uh, oftentimes they would rather get three, four, five, 10, 12 tracks from one person. Why? Which I'm not a fan of that idea personally, but you know, I don't own their companies. I can't tell them how to do business. They are in the hot seat and they know what works best for them better than I would. The reason that they want somebody who can crank out more stuff and, and create a whole CD in quotes for them is that way they only have to do the contract with one person. It takes more time and more due diligence to do, let's say there are 12 pieces of music going on this imaginary CD, let's call it a compilation. Um, they know that it's going to be a lot less painful for them to do the deal with one composer who's created 12 tracks versus 12 composers who've created one track each. So that's where this comes from. They want experience, or they want composers who have experience writing full albums in the genre. They also know that people who've had that experience would probably understand the drill well enough from the creative side to know, okay, let's say you're doing, um, 
I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say you're doing dramedy. Um, so they know that somebody who's creating dramedy um, might do a range of emotions, cover a range of emotions, because you don't want 12 dramedy tracks that are all quirky, silly, funny dramedy, right? Um, you probably want a couple of quirky, silly dramedies. <laughs> Am I the first person that ever called them dramedies? <laughs> uh, but, you know, you want a couple of this, a uh, couple of other ones that are sneaky and mischievous, a couple more that are maybe, um, I'm trying to think of another kind of dramedy, um, suspenseful dramedy. Uh, you know, they're, they're variations on a theme within the, the dramedy um, genre or style. So they want somebody that would create, turn in an album uh, of 12 of these tracks with some of this, some of that, some of the other, and some of the other, kind of covering a typical range of dramedy styles. That way, they are dealing with one composer, somebody who probably understands deadlines, somebody who knows the drill as far as if they require stems or, or um, cutdowns or alt mixes, that they understand that terminology as well. Um, they understand what healthy levels are that they should be delivering. All those things that you learn from experience, they know that an experienced composer is probably going to bring some or many or all of those things to bear in that new relationship that they've just struck up. So not only do they want to get um, a bunch of stuff but they want somebody who is going to make their life easier because that's what makes the business world go around. What can I do to make your life easier? Um, I read a book about Bill Gates 25 years ago or more. Uh, it kept talking about how he wanted to make the world frictionless, uh, meaning that what can I do to make things happen more quickly, more easily, more smoothly? Well, that's what libraries are looking for, a frictionless relationship. Um, all right, I'm going to take a couple of questions here. I saw some go by. Brad Gray had one. When writing for a listing then, should we try to write four or five similar ones versus just a single one per listing? What do others do here? Uh, you know, several of the listings will now say that they're looking for people that can do multiples. It's become extremely common that when a library reaches out to a member that they've heard through a taxi forward, they say, by the way, do you have more of those? Oh, you do. Or you don't. And can you do more? Like, could you, because they have release dates. A lot of times they will actually put out, they have like a calendar of release dates for certain types of CDs and they get artwork done for the cover, which is not even going on a real CD, but they do. Um, so they want to know, do you have more? Um, so it wouldn't be a bad idea that if you have the capability, if you've already got your template set up to do a quirky dramedy piece, um, why not, after you finish that one, do a mischievous one or two, do a sneaky one or two, whatever the other variants on dramedy are. Um, I wouldn't say it's absolutely required, but it's probably a good business idea to crank them out. You've already got the template. So that way, if the one that you get, the one you submit gets forwarded and generates a call or an outreach from the library, they are going to ask you more often than not, do you have more of this? And you can say, why, yes, I do. 
I've got four more. Well, great, send them on over. And at that point, they may say, this is all great stuff. It's all usable. I'd like to sign it all. Um, and frankly, I could use eight more. Can you generate eight more of these within the next 30 days? Yes, I can, because I'm a professional. Um, I saw another question where Scott Hansen wants to know, are the royalties from movies typically higher than the royalties from TV shows? Um, that's kind of an unanswerable question, uh, but I will do my best. Movies in America do not generate any performance royalties for theatrical plays, right? So you take your wife, you go out to a movie, and you see Gone with the Wind. The music that's in there does not generate performance royalties. However, in most other countries around the world, there are theatrical performance royalties. So if your music ends up in something that's distributed globally to theaters, you're going to make some money there. Now, what if the movie goes to HBO or ABC or NBC, um, wherever? Um, you're going to get royalties for those TV plays of that same movie that didn't generate royalties in a movie theater, but now it's on television, so it does. Um, so it's kind of hard to, it's not really apples and apples, Scott. That's the problem is, uh, and, and various, not all TV shows pay the same. It depends on how big the audience is, what time of day uh, it airs. Um, does it air on a broadcast network like ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox? Does it air on sci-fi? The, the royalty payments, uh, performance royalty payments are going to be dramatically different between airing on sci-fi and airing on NBC at primetime. Sci-fi at one o'clock in the morning uh, versus ABC at 9 p.m. So all those variables go into the formula, which the um, PROs mysteriously try to explain in terms that even most music attorneys can't understand. There's definitely some sort of, and I'm not saying they're cheating anybody, it's just nobody understands their formulas. Um, and I don't even understand that. In a world where every single play could be counted as a click, it, you know, it's a binary thing, either it plays or it doesn't. Computers count spins, you know, through audio, um, what are they, audio identification software, um, audio fingerprinting, you know, with some inaudible, computer tone that's unique to that piece of music. Many problems are solved by that. Yet, um, I would say my personal opinion, just my own personal observation, the PROs seem reluctant to use that technology, even though it's very available. Um, why is the question? I do not know. Maybe it's just hard to change the way they work. I don't know. But I'm surprised musicians haven't kind of collectively demanded, hey, if my music plays for an audience of 1.7652 million people tonight, I want to be paid for exactly that. What they do now is called sampling, and they will look at, they'll take sample markets, like, okay, well, let's say that St. Louis is a secondary market. So they'll take St. Louis and Indianapolis and, I don't know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and say, okay, those are secondary markets, and the average number of people who watched this show at that time during that airing was X number of people. So therefore, we can extrapolate with 72 other secondary markets out there that this is how many people saw that thing, and this is how you should get paid. They do the same thing for primary markets, tertiary markets, 
but there's so much hocus pocus that goes into it. I don't understand it. I remember spending like a week one time, I just shut, shut the door to my office and tried so hard to understand all this stuff and went, I don't get it. I'm relatively intelligent. I mean, I'm not exactly a brain surgeon, but I couldn't understand it. Anyway, so I'm sorry if I frustrated you with that answer. <laughs> Whoa. Lot, lot of stuff in this chat room today. I thought I saw another question go by. Okay, so let's tackle another one of these. So now you understand about the business side of things, why they don't want to work with newbies, and from a composer creative side, why they prefer to work with people who have the experience. Um, here's another one that I can't say that I'm 100% expert on, but I'll take a shot. Important note. This producer has specifically asked that you only send unreleased songs that aren't already commercially available. If you've already commercially released them, then they can't use them. This includes releases on Spotify, CD Baby, etc. I believe, I, I, I've heard this myself too, that even if your thing, is, if your music, you know, Mikey Loves Debbie, is on a video that I make for my wife for her birthday. Um, and I write a little song telling her how much Mikey loves Debbie. And I put that up on YouTube and only 12 immediate family members ever see it. That disqualifies my song from being cut. Now, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a legal reason or a technical reason. They just don't want stuff that's been out in the marketplace before. And this is something that's relatively new, I believe. And it's a result of there are all these other avenues out there. So you sign up for CD Baby Pro or TuneCore, whatever it's called. Um, and I understand this. Look, you guys have music. You've made the music. You've invested a lot of time, money, and effort. And now you want to make some money with it, even if you don't sign up for them to be the ad publishing admin company or the publisher of your music, if all you're using them for is their basic distribution service, um, a major label artist in some cases, and again, I don't know if it's for, I don't think it's for legal reasons or even a business purpose so much as they want something that's virgin territory, that, that where it's not going to, their version of Mikey Loves Debbie isn't going to compete with my version of Mikey Loves Debbie. Debbie, that maybe their release could make my thing blow up and mine's the one that goes viral ultimately because people are going to search for Beyonce's version of Mikey Loves Debbie and they're going to see my thing right next to it and then they're going to start clicking on that. Maybe they'll like it and maybe they tell a million friends and so now Beyonce's got competition from the songwriter. I think that's the case. I could be wrong about that, but I'm kind of feeling like I'm pretty right. Um... Another variant on this language uh, is only artists, writers affiliated with ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, APRA, AMCOS are eligible to submit their music to this opportunity. Um, notice that they didn't say they want songs that are registered with or instrumentals that are registered with. What they said was they only want artists and writers that are affiliated and there's a good solid reason for that, and you shouldn't like worry about this one. The reason is, is they need to know that when they sign you, 
that if you're an ASCAP writer or a BMI writer, a CSAC writer, whatever, that they can fill that out on the, the submission that they make to the show or put it in the metadata so that when the assistant or maybe it's an assistant editor, maybe it's a production assistant, whoever is filling out the cue sheet has that information and that play of that music gets reported to your PRO. So that's all that means. If you don't have a PRO, it doesn't mean that you have to have that song already registered with the PRO. The libraries are probably going to do that. But they want to know that when push comes to shove and it's time to distribute that money, that your PRO is going to get your money to then distribute to you at a later date because you belong to a PRO. <clears throat> Excuse me. Refreshing. How many libraries does Taxi generally work with at any given time? A ballpark. Um, somewhere between 25 and 50 are kind of active in any six month period. I was shocked not that long ago. Looking, We were having a slow couple of weeks and I said, let's go back and look at our list of all of our clients over the years and just see, you know, is there anybody that we haven't reached out to in a while or hasn't reached out to us? It was thousands of companies that we've worked with, thousands of them. Um, but I would say in any, and this is a ballpark guesstimate, um, based on when we put together one of our compilations, like we're running one or we just ran one for songs with the word home or thematically about home, going home, staying home, can't wait to get home, home is where the heart is, all that stuff. We have started putting together these compilations, excuse me, and we will send them out to typically, I want to say somewhere around three, four dozen companies. So those are probably the companies that we've got warm and fuzzy relationships currently. Uh, and, and sometimes what happens is a library, this happens fairly frequently, a company will come to us um, I just had a call the other day from somebody overseas that said, hey, guess what? I'm starting a whole new thing distributed by another major distributor. And I want to use Taxi as our uh, you know, primary, if not sole resource to find all the music. So that's great for you guys. Um, companies use Taxi to build almost their entire catalog. Nobody has kind of the reach that Taxi has and the connection with as many songwriters, artists, and composers as we do. Um, that acts as a funnel to libraries. So yeah, they could sit there and, and reach out to people they know that might equal a hundred people, whereas we can reach out to thousands. Um, when they reach out to a hundred people, then they've got to do all the curation of the music. When we reach out to thousands, we do all the curation and they know that whatever they get from us is going to be over the quality bar and stylistically on target. Then it's just a matter of choice by them do I think that I can exploit this piece of music? Maybe a great piece of music, but might not be great for their client base. Anyway, so um, I forgot where I was going with this, but basically, yeah, we, we work with dozens of companies in any period of time. And oh, so, so let's say somebody starts using Taxi to build virtually an entire new catalog with three, four, five, 10,000 tracks over a period of time. They might go gung-ho. I'm sure you guys have noticed sometimes there are a bunch of listings that sound like they've all come from the same company and they probably have because they're building a new catalog. 
at some point the catalog gets robust enough that they go ahead and launch it or they've kind of reached capacity on what they need and want and they slow down on the number of listings that they're running. So they may be gung-ho and in our face for a year or two and then all of a sudden they drop off and we barely hear from them. And then maybe nine months to two years later, they come back because it's time to start adding new stuff because tastes have changed. What's hot and gets licensed frequently changes. Um, maybe stuff that they signed, you know, make, let's say EDM that was made in 2018 is no longer as current sounding as EDM that's made in 2021. So then they're looking for more fresh EDM. That's the word, fresh. Um, Scott Hansen, do writers make money when the movies get downloaded? That's that whole other discussion. <laughs> it depends how they get downloaded. Are you talking streamed? Are you talking about somebody buys it? And, and frankly, try as I might to understand all that stuff. And I've had Aaron Jacobson on the show. Um, Michael Ames and Bobby Borg talked about this when they did their thing uh, at the road rally. I still don't totally get it to where I feel like I can be an authority and let you know. Um, okay, like scroll down. Albuquerque, that must have been Greg Carosa. I lost it, but I'll bet you anything that was Greg Carosa. <laughs> uh, I think it's best to not register songs with your PRO unless you know who is signing them, right? Um, generally speaking, the writers want to register, I mean, the, the libraries want to register with the PRO, your song, not you as a, a, a writer, composer with the PRO, but that particular song they most often uh, prefer to do the registration. If you've registered it, um, then they have to do some sort of transfer thing where the registration now goes in the publishing company's name. Um, oh, damn, these things are just going by. Dog and Pony Productions, question. So if I'm registered as an artist with BMI and all my instrumental submissions, then don't need to be registered. Right, most oftentimes the libraries uh, will do that for you. Spring Level says, Bobby Borg had my brain blowing up. <laughs> nice. Uh, Marion Laird, I can't think of a great question. Wow, that must mean I've done a really good job so far. <laughs> As he pats himself on the back. Question, how can you identify the fake listings from the real deal? Are you talking about how does Taxi identify the fake listings from the real deal or talking about you as a musician when you are out there on the internet looking at other services that claim to do what Taxi does? Do you know if their listings are fake or real? Um, we know when ours are real. Um, that's a whole... Correct, Brad Gray. Wait until the publisher signs you. More often than not, they would prefer to do it. Uh, 
what percentage of this is a great question i'm glad you asked this what percentage of opportunities are direct to the artist as opposed to libraries for film tv etc are you talking about artists like you know pitching songs to artists on labels are you talking about direct to i guess you said direct artists um honestly i haven't done a head count lately it kind of ebbs and flows um I would say probably if we can just call it, you know, what percentage of taxis listings overall are film and TV related versus artist related, I would say, and you guys can let me know what you think, but I would say probably 65% are film and TV and 35% are for labels somewhere around there. I'm scanning. Sorry for those of you who are not part of the live crew today watching me stare at my screen. I'm sure it's not very exciting, but I'm just looking to see if there are any great questions. Uh, um, Scott Hansen, idea. Recently dabbled in creating content for a friend of mine who owns a radio station, station IDs and promos with background music, could that be a possible untapped market for content creators? Yeah, just so you know, Scott, there are companies that, you know, like when you hear WLS in Chicago, which is what uh, WLS had for their, you know, uh, what they, they call them radio ID packages, I believe. Uh, that was probably from the 60s, and I still remember it. So when they're creating that, for instance, my friend I told you was like the genius of the music library industry. He also had a company uh, in Dallas with 17 studios under one roof, I believe. And they would create the rhythm tracks for all these different variations, you know, like a stinger, a two second, a five second, a 15 second, a 20 second, a 30 second, a 40 second, a 60 second, a two minute all variations on the same musical theme that the radio station used as its ID package, right? Um, now, uh, these companies would then license that music by territory. So if a radio station in Chicago got WLS in Chicago, uh, another station also in Chicago couldn't do WNBC in Chicago, um, because it would be conflicting. So they had to make sure that the radio stations were far enough apart that their signal didn't get to these other places. But if you were in Chicago, um, if they licensed WLS in Chicago, they could also license it, let's say, to, you know, WDAL in Dallas, because they're so far apart that the Chicago listeners and Dallas listeners would never hear the same thing in their own markets. So that was the business model they had. And those people made a lot of money on performance royalties. They would charge a lot to create the libraries and they would take the same rhythm tracks and literally have the singers just re-sing all the station ID call letters. Brilliant business model. Um, so if you're gonna go after that, it would probably be like you did for a friend, you know, in a, a smallish market, but you would have to really know that side of the business. You'd have to know all the variants uh, that they need, you know, what, what lengths, um, all that stuff. It's not just like you come up with a cool piece of music and then they take it and you make money. It's not, nothing's ever as easy as it appears. 
Um, I, I guess I could let you guys know this. I have been um, in discussions. We'll see. Sometimes these things take a year or more to pan out. But um, there is a Christian media company that is interested in having their own library of stuff and they own radio stations they do some films i believe maybe some tv and they're looking at the possibility of having an in-house library and i was connected with them and i've had two discussions with them the last one being right before the road rally like the day before the road rally um and we agreed that we would talk again in the month of december so um, they probably already use a uh, company that specializes in creating ID packages. So that may be off the table for what taxi members get to do for them if the deal comes through. Um, but I suspect that it, it would be a, a fun project for us and for you guys. Um, oh, okay. So... I see a little bit of chit chat in the chat room. Wow, it's already 5.16, wow. Okay, so um, what did I just see in there? Oh, somebody, here, here's a classic example. Um, and one of the staff members, I was at the office for about four hours today and one of uh, our member services people said to me, yeah, we frequently get calls from people who go, oh my God, I don't wanna sign this song uh, in perpetuity. For a hundred years, what are they kidding me? Um, do what you want. Um, it's not a one size fits all world, but people in the know who understand the norms of the industry know that the deals basically come in two types. Either you sign, you sign in perpetuity, which frankly, if I had instrumental cues, I probably wouldn't bat an eye at signing a you know, an exclusive deal, no money up front in perpetuity because you're going to end up creating a hundred more cues in that genre over some period of time. So to be so precious about one piece or two pieces or three pieces of music, write, submit, forget, repeat. And when you sign a deal with that piece of music, who cares if it's in perpetuity? Why do the companies want it in perpetuity? Because they're trying to screw you? No, they're not. It's just difficult for them um, in the library business, uh, there are a few different ways that they distribute their music. Um, oftentimes they send them out on, on drives. There's a drive. Oh, look at that. My initials, 2020. This is where the Road Rally resides. Um, they also can send them out. Now you can buy thumb drives that, you know, hold a ridiculous amount of stuff. So they may send those drives out to 20 production companies working in reality TV or 50 or 100 or wherever. So if they have a deal where stuff is not signed in perpetuity and it reverts back to them or back to you after a year or two years or three years, which is sweet if you can get that in a deal, but frankly, I personally wouldn't worry that much about it. Uh, libraries won't sign your music unless they think they can make money with it. They don't make money with 100% of what they sign, obviously. Sometimes it's a bad call. Sometimes it's just music that their clients don't warm up to and don't use for whatever the reason. But um, you can say, oh, well, you know, I would love to get that piece of music back. The chances of you getting it into another catalog that's going to have a fruitful run with that music, 
probably not that great anyway. And like I said, it's a penny business. But if they sign it in perpetuity, they don't have to worry about distributing it out on thumb drives. Let's go with the thumb drive scenario for the sake of this discussion. And let's say that there's another library that has a two-year reversion, meaning that if they don't get that song placed somewhere during the first two years it signed with them, on the anniversary date of the second year, um, you've probably got like a 30-day window to reach out to them and say, I'd like to get this composition in the master back, which is great if you can do that. Uh, it's not unheard of, but the reason most libraries don't want to do it is so let's say they've got 5,000 pieces of music and they've put it on a thumb drive and they've sent it out to 50 companies. Now do they reach out to those companies and say, oh, by the way, can you take off track number 122, track 178, track 455, track 2125? Uh, that's unwieldy. Uh, many of the things nowadays just live in the cloud, so it's easier for them. So that's probably becoming more widely acceptable for them to take stuff out of their catalog. So maybe we'll see more reversion um, clauses coming up. My own personal observation is in many, not all, there are always exceptions to everything, but in many cases, stuff that reverts back and you get it into another catalog, a small percentage of the time it does bear fruit elsewhere just because they've got different clients or their clients need more of that kind of music, whatever. Uh, but more often than not, it doesn't. It's just, you know, it's a piece of music that was good enough that the first library thought that it's good. It's of, in a genre that I think people will want, my clients will want, um, and people just didn't love it. They heard other stuff that fit their picture better or their story better or their mood or whatever, their emotion. All right, so now, because we've only got nine minutes left, I can't believe I just talked to you guys for this long in this subject with no notes, by the way, zero notes today. Sometimes I think I do better with no notes. Okay. Um, Michael, how is logic coming along? I was thinking about it today when I was at the office. I haven't played with it since the rally. It takes me about a week after the rally to send out thank you notes, uh, sponsors and panelists and all that stuff. Um, and right now I'm just like, I took the whole day off yesterday. I didn't answer a text. I didn't answer an email. I didn't even open the lid on my laptop yesterday. Um, okay. So now, um, Here's the solution that I had jotted down on my little short list some time ago. It could have been months ago, actually. And then Bria and I were talking about today and she said the same thing that I'd written down. I went, you know, if I thought of it and then you thought of it, maybe there's something to it. And now I'm trying to remember what the hell it was. Oh, I am going to talk to the libraries. This won't happen very quickly just because things take a little time. I'm going to talk to the libraries and ask them if they would permit us to remove the language of these things that I read to you off of this sheet today, reading it off the same email that you guys got, and replace it with, please don't submit your music to this library if you have not watched this video. And within the listing, there would be a blue line link where it says this video and it would take you to a YouTube video. It could be this. It could be a little five minute consolidation. That way more people will get educated kind of in the moment. Now, what happens if people see that and go, I don't need to stick, you know, click no stupid link. I don't need to watch no video. My music's amazing. They're gonna love me. So I don't know, but 
that seems, I mean, way better than the certification process or, oh yeah, I know Gloria, she, she wouldn't be an idiot in, in bust your chops of, you know, in a phone call. Um, as much as I would love to in, endorse people I know and love and have known for years, I really don't know what their level of knowledge is. And it's not like I or anybody else on the staff has the time to give everybody a driving test. But so that's what we're thinking of. Um, we don't need no education. <laughs> um, the muffin said I could have been a donut, but I took the whole day off. Woohoo! Anyway, so that's where we're at. A simp sometimes, you know, ever heard of Occam's razor? It's basically, uh, I think it's, you might call it a postulate that says... Uh, Oftentimes, the simplest answer is the best. Well, maybe the simplest answer is rather than um, hoping that everybody watches taxi TV and hoping everybody comes to the road rally and hoping everybody is paying attention and has learned this stuff. Um, oh, remind me in a minute. I want to talk to you about negotiating a deal, a music library deal. Um, you know, just having that link there. Um, and I don't think that I should have this 90 minute show there because people are going to look at it and go, I'm not watching 90 minutes of this crap. So I've got to find a way to do a little five minute consolidation of what took me 90 minutes to do today. Um, and, uh, we'll see if that works. You know, if the complaints keep coming in from the companies we work with, then maybe we'll have to revert back to the, the do not submit language. So there you go. We got five minutes left. Oh yeah, negotiating. Oh, I already talked about this up front, which is um, really you are in no position to negotiate unless you are a big player in the music library business. Do we have some members that have such a long history of making tons of money for the libraries that they've worked with that the libraries might agree to negotiate a, a deal that's a little better um, for those writers. Yeah, um, but they probably, again, don't customize it per writer so that they would have, oh, this one's got that deal, that one's got another deal, and then she's got yet another deal, and then somebody else is going to want another deal. They probably have like the um, standard deal and then maybe like one or two or three percent of their people that they've worked with for a long time that have made them a lot of money and they want to keep them happy so they don't jump ship and go elsewhere with their music and make somebody else a lot of money. Might they have a file folder that says, you know, the special people, the teacher's pets, if you will, the, the pros, uh, and, and they probably have a, a standardized better deal. Um, I wish that for all of you. May you get so good and make so much money for yourselves and for the libraries that you work with that someday you'll be comfortable enough with them and they will be fond enough of you that you can say, by the way, on this new collection of 12 songs I'm giving you, can we do a little better deal? And they'll hem and they'll haw and they'll go, okay, here's what I can offer you. Just take it. Um, just take it because they're not going to create customized deals for 20 people or 50 people or 100 people. But if they've got 10 people that are of that level, that substantial level of expertise and income for them, rather than lose you to their com competition, 
they are probably going to say, okay, I do have this better deal that on rare occasions, and I mean rare, probably like once every year or 18 months or two years, might they break down and offer that deal to somebody. It's just going to be a better deal, but it's going to be standardized and go to very few people. So we've got three minutes left. Uh, I'm looking to see if there are any more questions in there. Dan Weber wants to know, is that the trend, production companies starting their own libraries? I don't know if it's a trend. They There are certainly several that have realized that there's money in publishing. Um, I like the fact that they figure out the taxi's the place to turn when they need to build a library. I think the shortcut that they're trying to take, which we've already talked about in previous episodes and none of us are fans of, is they reach out to a library that they've been doing business with for three years, five years, 10 years, and say, by the way, we'd like some of the publisher's share. And the libraries go, oh, that's where our income comes from. What do you mean you want half of the publisher's share or 100% of the publisher's share? Well, uh, do that or we'll just build our own library or we'll go to somebody else who will give us that deal. So then the library has to capitulate uh, and then the library turns to their writers and composers and says, hey guys, sadly the industry is going toward this new trend, this new business model, um, where the companies that use the music also own a piece of it, therefore leaving a very small, if any, piece of the pie for us. So we hate to do this, but we need to dip into your writer's share. Don't do it. It's a slippery slope. Um, I hope it never gets so bad. Remember Discovery tried to do this a year or so ago, um, that they were gonna do direct licensing and it turned into a big um, mess and eventually they capitulated and backed down. So there you go. Um, all right, we're down to our last minute. Um, a day of learning the biz. Yes, spring. <laughs> I think that about sums it up. Um, that's right. Bria is reminding you, don't forget to hit the like button if you enjoyed this episode. You know what? Hit the like button if you appreciate the fact that I just freestyled for 90 minutes and didn't curse once. Um, uh, I hope it was helpful, you guys. Um, and that's that. I will see you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow we will be doing God only knows what on the quarantine happy hour, but let's have a little bit of a party atmosphere because Thanksgiving is coming for those of us who live in America. All right, you guys, be well. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for paying attention. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Don't forget to hit the like button. And if you're not a subscriber, hit that red button. Doesn't cost a penny. Bye-bye.